Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning, everybody. A guy named James Mishner, one of the best-selling authors of the 20th century, when he was very old and had suffered a great deal, he wrote his memoirs, and he started by recalling an event from his childhood. This is what he said. The farmer living at the end of our land had an aging apple tree that had once been abundantly productive, but had now lost its energy and ability to bear any fruit at all. The farmer, on an early spring day, I still remember, hammered eight nails long and rusty into the trunk of the tree. Four were knocked in close to the ground on four different sides of the trunk, four higher up and well-spaced about the circumference. That autumn, a miracle happened. The tired old tree, having been goaded back to life, produced a bumper crop of juicy red apples, bigger and better than we had seen before. When I asked how this had happened, the farmer explained, hammering in the rusty nails gave it a shock to remind it that its job is to produce apples. Was it important that the nails were rusty? Well, maybe it made the mineral in the nail easier to digest. Was eight important? Now, if you're going to send a message, be sure it's heard. Could you do the same next year? A substantial jolt lasts about 10 years. Fascinating, isn't it? Pain is nails hammered into a tree, and the nails always come. The book of Job says, For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. You know, we want to believe that the nails, the pain, the suffering hammered into our lives will somehow make us more fruitful, more productive. But what we know for sure is trouble comes. A young woman had a father who was a brilliant scientist and devoted dad. It seemed to her that he could make sense of everything. She talked about how he would explain things to her in a way filled with magic and wonder the connections between the second law of thermodynamics and the first sentence of Anna Karenina. But her story was filled with sorrow because this brilliant father of hers suffered courageously with depression and eventually the depression won. Her pain still lingers. A man was diagnosed with terminal cancer and his brother cared for him while his body wasted away. But then unexpectedly, his brother, his caretaker, died of a heart attack. And so now this man dying of cancer, clothes hanging from his body like a scarecrow, had to bury the brother he thought would bury him. A wonderful young boy grows up in a church, but he's different. His patterns of attraction are different. And so he's made fun of and taunted and not wanted. And what should have been his safest place was dangerous to him. It was a long time ago, but the wounds still fester in him. You know, if there was such a thing as a painometer, if it were possible to measure units of pain like we measure the depth of the ocean, how large would the sea of human sorrows be? This is from the book of Job. 
If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. Oof. Amazing statement from Job, like God is shooting poison arrows at me. And that's just one life. In 2004, an earthquake under the Indian Ocean unleashed the amount of energy equivalent to 550 million times the energy of the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And 250,000 people were killed. Now, every one of them was someone's son, someone's daughter with hopes and dreams. And in the days that followed, newspapers and forums were filled with the question we're addressing today. Is it possible to believe in a God who is all loving, so he wants what is good, and all powerful, so he's able to make what is good, in a world with so much suffering and so much evil? Archibald McLeish wrote a play about Job where he expressed this problem in a single line. If God is good, he is not God. If God is God, he is not good. You know, it's striking that one of the books that is most troubled and perplexed by human suffering is the Bible. You know, the Bible has an awful lot to say about suffering. Really, the first two chapters in the Bible are about the universe before suffering. And the last chapter is about existence post-suffering. But most everything else in between is about suffering. Now, sometimes, maybe most of the time, we bring suffering on ourselves as a consequence of our actions. Like, how many of you have ever gotten a speeding ticket? Okay, second question. How many of you were actually speeding when you got the ticket? Yeah, right? You know, the last time I got a ticket, my first thought when I saw the flashing lights was, why me? You know, other people are way worse drivers than I am. Well, the answer, of course, is I was speeding. You know, the Bible, in places like the book of Proverbs, offers wisdom about this. Act wisely. Parent wisely. Drive wisely. Handle your money wisely, your sexuality, your anger, your words. Don't blame God or the universe or others if you've made your own mess. We all do, and we all need that wisdom. But even still, there are way more passages in the Bible that wrestle with the mystery of suffering. You know, mostly the biblical writers don't explain suffering to people. Mostly they protest suffering to God. From Israel's slavery in Egypt, to the sufferings of Job, to the emptiness of the writer of Ecclesiastes, to psalms of complaint, to entire books like Lamentations. How long? What for? God, have you forgotten? Do you hear? Will you act? It's fascinating. The Bible is not written by people who explain evil and prove God's existence. It's written by people who are disoriented and troubled by evil, like us. Now, I hate suffering and evil and hurt. I hate that people I love have to carry burdens that crush them, that are unfair, that are unrelenting. I wake up at night sometimes troubled by that. And I'm reminded we all must find a way to live. We all must find a why to live, all of us. Christian, atheist, Buddhist, Muslim, skeptic, none of the above. We're all united in the fellowship of grief and pain. And it's the strangest thing. If you ask people why they don't believe in God, the existence of pain, evil, and suffering is probably the number one answer. 
And yet most religions are actually born from suffering. A young, very entitled prince named Siddhartha leaves his palace and sees a sick man, an old man, and a dead body for the first time in his life. And he decides to devote himself to the problem of suffering. And Buddhism begins. The story of Israel is an exodus out of Egypt when the people of Israel were enslaved and they didn't know why. And their children were being murdered. Christianity began with the life of Jesus who was impoverished and hounded during his ministry. You know, the Gospels are unique amongst biographies in focusing mostly on Jesus' humiliation and crucifixion. They're sometimes called the death story with an introduction. The prophet Isaiah says about Jesus, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You know, our outrage at unjust suffering actually points toward the existence of God. Let me say that again. It's a very key point. Our outrage at unjust suffering actually points toward the existence of God. An Oxford professor, C.S. Lewis, said for many years his main reason for being an atheist was that the universe was so cruel, unjust, and unfair. But over time, he came to realize that if atheism were true, there would be no grounds for this complaint. There would be no reason to expect justice in the first place. Lewis writes, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it didn't happen to please me. Atheism turns out to be too simple. Hmm. Deep down, we know there is such a thing as justice. There is such a thing as fairness, and it's not arbitrary. We are rightly angered when it's violated, and we demand justice. A guy named Dave Hegler was an umpire, and he shares this story. He says, I was driving too fast in the snow in Boulder, Colorado, and a policeman pulled me over and gave me a speeding ticket. I tried to talk him out of it, telling him how worried I was about insurance and that I was normally a very careful driver. And he said I should go to court and try to get it reduced or thrown out. Well, the first game of the next baseball season, I'm umpiring behind home plate, and the first batter up is the same policeman. I recognize him. He recognizes me. And so he asked me how the thing went with the speeding ticket. And I tell him, swing at everything. <laughs> there is such a thing as justice. And so you have to ask, where does it come from? The whole notion of justice demands that existence is more than just a universe of jiggling atoms rearranging themselves. There is not just a way things are. There is a way things are supposed to be. You know, evolution is about the survival of the fittest, but that's not enough to explain moral reality. Innocent people should not starve or be oppressed or be abused. Now, none of this proves there is a God, but it does show that our outrage at unjust suffering is a hard thing for secularism to account for. Secularism sometimes offers the illusion of control. That's kind of ironic because of medicine and 
technology and wealth, we have reduced many forms of suffering in our day. I mean, we live longer, healthier, cleaner, safer, more educated and affluent lives. But that very progress can feed the illusion that we're in control. You know, often we want to make sense of suffering because we think if we can make sense of it, then we can avoid it, right? We can control it. So if people hear about somebody contracting lung cancer, their first question is usually, did he smoke? Because I cannot smoke and then it won't happen to me. I can parent better and then my kids will turn out the way I want. I can work harder and then I won't suffer vocational pain. I can adopt a healthy lifestyle and then I won't lose my health. Ironically, we suffer way less than people in the ancient world did, but we fear suffering way more than they did. You know, in the ancient world, by contrast, part of wisdom was to cultivate an awareness that suffering is inevitable. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus said, you should constantly remind yourself and those nearest to you of your vulnerability and mortality. In fact, he once said, what harm is there while you're kissing your child to murmur softly, tomorrow you will die. Of course, Epictetus' kids all ended up in therapy. But in the ancient world, they knew about suffering. In medieval Europe, 20% of all children did not reach their first birthday. And 50% of all kids died before they were 10 years old. And people in that day, they loved their kids just as much as you and I do. The average lifespan at that time was about 35. But you see, they had a worldview that made sense of suffering far better than most people do today, where we think we can control it with technology or use legislation to outlaw it. You know, one of the great questions you have to ask of any worldview is, what does it have to say to a suffering individual? Biologist and atheist Richard Dawkins describes the message of secularism like this. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. As a pastor, I can't imagine sitting at the side of a dying young girl saying, some people get lucky. Not you. No rhyme, no reason, no justice, no hope. I believe that despair is not just bad and unpleasant. I believe it's wrong. I believe despair is incorrect. I believe it's based on a false view of the world. And you know, suffering actually points us beyond ourselves. We often try to numb our pain with work or shopping or comfort foods or forbidden website or a few drinks. You know, it's been said that every addiction begins as an escape from pain. Every one of them. And every addiction ends with enslavement to pain. Every one of them. You know, we often try to hide our pain. There was a famous story in the Manual of Psychological Medicine published back in 1850. An Italian actor went to see a doctor about depression he suffered from that he despaired of ever curing. And the doctor recommended he go and see the acting of a famous comic named Carlini. The doctor said, your depression would have to be very deep indeed if the acting of the fabulous Carlini does not remove it. And the patient sighed, I am 
Carlini. You know, we can distinguish between two primary ways of suffering. And this is where suffering and hope begin to intersect. There's suffering from, and then there is suffering with. We can suffer from something, or we can suffer with someone. We suffer from painful events and experiences. Maybe it's a loss of sleep, or traffic, or a bad hair day, or divorce, or bankruptcy, or cancer. Whenever you're experiencing something you don't want to experience, you're suffering from. But then there's suffering with. And that, oddly enough, is something that people choose. Like, this is voluntary suffering. We stop what we're doing. We sit beside a hospital bed. We listen to a mom who has lost her child. I sit with a friend in his most anxiety-filled moment, and I can't fix it. I can't make it go away. I can do nothing but hurt with him. And yet my willingness to hurt with him helps him somehow. He is less alone. Part of his burden gets shifted to me. And we end up with a bond, a connection. Like I've seen this, I've experienced it. And it runs deeper than ever before. And suffering with can hurt every bit as much as suffering from. But it often involves a breathtaking kind of goodness and nobility. And it brings us to the heart of the story of Jesus. You see, Jesus was the master of suffering with. I mean, there's never been anybody who did it like him, ever. He suffered with lepers. And he wept over lost people. And he listened to the scandal-ridden. And he had compassion on the doubters. He suffered rejection, mockery, and humiliation on behalf of all sinners. Of course, the place of his ultimate suffering was the cross. Suffering from sin and guilt and death and suffering with you and me. We sometimes wonder in our pain and suffering, where is God? He's there on a cross. Nails pounded into a tree, but first pounded into the hands of God. See, only Jesus reveals to us what no human being had ever imagined before him. A wounded God, a broken God, a scarred God. John Stott wrote a book about the cross of Jesus. And he said this, I have entered many Buddhist temples and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed with the ghost of a smile. But each time I turn away again to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. You know, Isaiah said this about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You see, we don't honor life. We don't honor those we love. We don't honor the courage of so many who have endured suffering and loss nobly by capitulating to despair. So what do we do? We fight. We fight it. 
You know, Jesus never said we will not suffer. He said we will not suffer alone. His disciple Thomas didn't believe he had really been raised from the dead. So Jesus appeared to him and said, put your finger here. See my hands. Now, this is so amazing. Jesus at that time has a new, very real body. Like he's able to eat and do amazing things like pass through a locked door. But in his resurrected body, Jesus still carries the scars of those nails. You know, God says one day he'll wipe away every tear, but Jesus still carries his scars. You know, perhaps Jesus retained those scars, not because he couldn't heal them, but because they reflect his love more than unwounded hands ever could. Maybe, just maybe, there's a beauty to a wounded body that an unwounded body doesn't know. Paul says that Jesus knew unimaginable glory, that through him the stars in the sky were made. We often want to turn our scars into stars. Jesus turned his stars into scars. Like who would make up a story like that? And this points us to our calling as a church. Paul says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There is suffering from and there is suffering with. And we're called to suffer with. But how do we suffer with somebody who lived 2,000 years ago? Well, Jesus told us how. He said, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. Jesus points to suffering human beings, every one of them, and says, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. I weep, I hurt, I bleed, I die. When we mourn with those who mourn, when we listen, when we sit beside someone who is sick, when you visit an injured veteran or sponsor a hungry little child or give to those in extreme poverty, when you lead a small group so someone who's alone or whose heart is breaking has a home, you're suffering with Jesus and your suffering is not in vain. A deep need for suffering people is to know that good can come out of their suffering. Not so much to explain it, but to redeem it. A mom who loses a child to a drunk driver starts an organization to fight drunk driving. A man who loses his leg in an accident ends up devoting his life to helping quadriplegics. You know, the movement of Jesus got started by two moments. Ultimate suffering in the crucifixion and then the ultimate hope of the resurrection. Jesus and then those who followed him endured suffering in a way previously unknown to humanity because they had a hope previously unknown to humanity. Paul put it like this, Therefore we do not lose heart, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Boy, those were amazing words from a man who knew a lot about suffering. Paul had been stoned, flogged, imprisoned, persecuted, starved, and ultimately martyred. Yet he calls these troubles light and momentary. Are you kidding me? Nails pounded in a tree. 
And he's saying, if you put them all on one scale, every tear shed by every broken heart, then on the other scale, you put a radiant, unending, eternal goodness that we cannot yet see or fathom. Is the glory then worth the trouble now? Is the hope that big? Well, the best I can offer is not nearly an adequate picture, but it's something. It's the picture of a mom in labor. Not a pretty picture for most moms, I know. But as painful and excruciating as that process can be for both the mom and often the baby, the glory at the end far outweighs it all. I've talked to enough moms to know this. The four, six, eight, 10, 12, 20 hours of suffering and labor, whatever it may be, cannot compare to the glory of the lifetime of that child who learns how to walk and talk and read and write and make friends and find a vocation, fall in love, and maybe one day have a child of her own. Her life here on earth alone will end up being 50 to 100,000 times longer than those few hours of labor. And the gap between a little baby and an adult, the gap between those few hours of intense labor and the lifetime that follows is nothing compared to the gap between our brief earthly life and the glory of all eternity. J.R. Tolkien writes this wonderful line at the end of The Lord of the Rings. Sam Gamgee sees Gandalf and he says, I thought you were dead, but then... I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes, it is. It's not just that suffering is going to end. It'll be healed. It'll be reversed. It'll be undone. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Heaven will work backwards and it's already started. Heaven has already turned the cross, which was the ultimate instrument of violence and hatred and injustice into the ultimate expression of triumphant love. And it'll one day turn agony, every agony, your agony, into glory. Unimaginable, eternal glory. In the meantime, we mourn with those who mourn. Folks, love the people around you like family. Wendy and I have always been blessed to have close friends to encourage us in tough times, like when we lost a child or received a scary diagnosis. Nails pounded into a tree. That's the story of our world. But hope is coming. And to be with people we know and love in tough times is such a gift. Well, I hope you have a little community like that, a circle of men and women who love you and will be with you when you suffer. Let us know if you'd like us to help you get connected with others here in our church body. Part of being a church family means we all have people to pray with, to laugh with, to cry with, and to share with. I hope you have that. Because I know suffering will come. I hope it doesn't find you alone. Let's pray. Lord, because of the fall because of our sin in the very beginning. We know we live in a broken, twisted world. We know that things are not right. But we also know that one day you're going to redeem it all. So God, would you give us endurance? 
Would you give us strength to just trust in you when we go through hard times to know that somehow, some way, you're going to redeem it. God, I pray that we would also be with others in their times of pain, that we would mourn with those who mourn, that every person listening to me right now would have somebody that could be there in tough times to encourage them, to hurt with them. And God, I'm so thankful for the truth that you are a God who not only understands suffering, you came to this earth, you suffered with us, you suffered for us. And that's a God we can identify with. So Lord, we love you and we thank you that one day the glory that we will enjoy will far outweigh our light and momentary troubles. In Jesus' name, amen.